this is an MACP podcast and uh, today I'm delighted to be joined by Leanne Bissett in uh, her hometown on the Gold Coast here in Australia. Thanks for giving up your time today, Leanne. Thank you, Dan. And we're going to be talking about uh, lateral elbow pain. Um, and Before we kick off with that, do you mind introducing yourself to the listeners, giving yourself a bit of, of background? In your, uh, in your area of uh, studies in the lateral elbow pain? Sure. So, as you said, my name's Leanne Bissett. I um, work here at Griffith University on the Gold Coast, Australia, and my PhD topic was on lateral elbow pain and specifically lateral epicondylalgia, or, or which is more commonly known as tennis elbow. And since then, uh, for the past decade or so, I guess I've I've um, kept my focus looking um, at trying to understand the mechanisms that underpin lateral elbow pain and also looked at various ways to treat it um, with the view to try and individualise, I guess, our approach um, to, to treating lateral elbow pain because it, it's one of those conditions that has this really simple clinical presentation but is seems to be incredibly challenging to get better yeah yeah that um leads me on to uh, nicely to to the start of our discussion can you can you uh, open things up by um discussing the, the evidence of the mechanisms underpinning lateral elbow pain yeah, this is a, a broad field and it's been well researched um, over over the years but there's been a lot of interest lately in trying to tease out the role that the local tissue pathology has versus other other things such as um, central sensitization, different pain mechanisms and things like that. Um, and also motor control. So uh, we, we've looked at, um, at lateral elbow pain as, a, as trying to bring together, I guess, the local tendon pathology, um, pain system impairments, as well as motor system impairments. There's, there's certainly evidence of local tissue pathology in tennis elbow or, or in lateral elbow pain. So it's a, there's signs of classic tendinopathy that particularly involves the extensor carpi radialis brevis tendon. And, and the evidence is there using ultrasound imaging as well as MRI imaging. Um, the problem with the, the local structural changes is that the severity of those changes don't align well and are not really associated with the severity of the clinical presentation. So this has always been a challenge for tendinopathies in general. And, it, and the same goes for Achilles and patellar tendinopathies, shoulder, um, and, and the same in the elbow, where the severity of those local structural changes in the tendon are, are disconnected to the severity of the clinical, like the pain and the disability, those clinical signs and symptoms. So certainly the tendon structure is there, is a feature of this lateral elbow pain. Um, but it's not the whole story, for the, you know, in terms of explaining the mechanisms under underpinning the pain and that clinical presentation. And certainly, Jill Cook's work has um, has has shown through some of her models that she proposes the the paratendon might be um, the innovated structure responsible for nociception in in tendinopathies. But her focus has been 
particularly on the lower limb tendinopathies. So, you know, perhaps there is a difference between the lower limb and the upper limb tendinopathies. You know, we're not sure. That's something we can talk about later maybe. But one of the, some of the other things, I guess, that we've found in terms of mechanisms is there seems to be growing evidence that there is widespread changes in sensory processing or sensory perception. So there's evidence of widespread mechanical hyperalgesia in, in people with chronic lateral elbow pain. Um, so that, that's usually measured by something called pressure pain threshold, and we've found that that there's a, a reduced threshold to pain with mechanical pressure, uh, both at the local elbow, the locally affected elbow, as well as on the unaffected side, and also more widespread than that, even at the neck and in the lower limb. So that's in people who just have unilateral, one-sided elbow pain. Um, there's also evidence Coombs um, Study, uh, published a, a paper in the Clinical Journal of Pain looking at cold pain thresholds as well. And what she found is that reduced um, threshold to cold pain, or, or alternatively, cold hyperalgesia, also um, helped to discriminate a more severe subgroup of people with tennis elbow, so people with more severe clinical symptoms. And that 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 cold hyperalgesia was present bilaterally, again, in people who just had one-sided elbow pain. So there's this growing body of evidence that seems to suggest that maybe some sort of central reorganisation resulting in central sensitisation might be at play in people with chronic, at least chronic, lateral elbow pain, and perhaps more so in those with severe symptoms. So I don't think we can put everyone with chronic, with lateral elbow pain into the one basket. I think there is probably a spectrum here and perhaps those with the more severe clinical symptoms that aren't explained by the structural, local structural changes in the tendon might be better explained by some of this central sensitisation that seems to be present. Yeah, fantastic. We will go into a little bit about the, the difference between the tendinopathies of the upper limb and the lower limb, but keeping on uh, on this side of things, so there is that growing body of evidence suggesting there's the involvement of the central nervous system in, in um, lateral elbow pain, but how, how would you then go on to, um, uh, how would this influence clinicians in the management of these this group of patients? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, on one hand, I guess it's it's if if you can identify those who do have uh, sensory changes, then prognostically that seems to also be associated with a poorer outcome at 12 months. So there are clinical implications that if they have got widespread sensory hyperalgesia in cold and mechanical, but particularly with this cold pain threshold, that they might be likely to have a poorer prognosis long term. That, that doesn't necessarily, that's not necessarily good news, I guess, for some patients, but it helps clinicians to try and, uh, and, and explain to the patient, help to get them on board in terms of how they might have to manage them and that, that it's not going to be a quick fix, that nothing is going to be quick, um, a quick fix for them. Um, having said that, there's some recent evidence as well that people with 
tennis elbow may have increased hyperalgesia to repeated stimuli called temporal summation. So this is a test where um, we use a pinprick stimulus and we prick, prick them once on one area and ask them to rate their level of pain and then we prick them 10 times repeatedly in succession and ask them to re-rate their level of pain. And so people with tennis elbow seem to have an increase or a facilitated response to that, that they get increased pain with repeated pinpricks compared to healthy controls. And so this brings into, into play another system. This is, this is more about our endogenous analgesia response. So this is about our, our body's ability to be able to modulate nociception and that sensory information. Now that has implications in, for management in terms of um, perhaps if that is present, that there may be assistance through particular drug modalities, for example. Some medications might specifically target the, um, the central nervous system pathways responsible for increased temporal facilitation, that, that, that temporal summation response. So there may be a role to play here in terms of pulling together a more multidisciplinary team in managing some of these patients and helping to better, you know, better, better manage their pain from a, a drug perspective, which then will also help with the exercise therapy. Because at the end of the day, if tendinopathy is present, then we know that the evidence suggests that exercise therapy is one of the best things we can do for that. It's just that with this central sensitization and this wind-up being present, it's it, it's pretty hard to be able to implement an exercise program or any even a hands-on manual therapy approach if it's pain provocative. And one of the things we've found with these patients is that if you provoke pain, and again, this might be a difference, a point of difference between the upper limb and the lower limb, but if you provoke pain clinically with these patients, they seem to get worse, not better. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's certainly something I've uh, discovered clinically as well in, in, in my own practice, the difference of that, the, the upper limb and lower limb. Before we go on to that, can we say, when, when would you open that door up into the MDT approach? So you're saying perhaps um, medication to help with compliance of the rehab program. At what point should a clinician be considering that? Is that early? Because obviously you, you mentioned the benefits in the initial assessment, having that dialogue with, the, um, with your patient in discussing you know, the, 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 the process of this rehab program so they're not coming in expecting it to be a, a, the, the, the golden bullet there that resolves all the pain in that session yeah. but um, yeah when would you start considering those that bringing in the, uh, that multidisciplinary approach? So we used to think that um, that chronic pain developed and these changes developed on a time continuum like the longer the pain went on for the more likely they were to start developing these central changes. It now seems to be that maybe these changes can appear quite early in the process. So it's not about a matter of waiting for them to have this elbow pain for six months before we start going, oh, we, maybe we should be, you know, including other people in this conversation. I think if, if a patient presents with high levels of uh, pain and disability, and so the, um, the tool that we typically use is called the patient-rated tennis elbow evaluation. 
and that's a validated tool, a self-reported questionnaire um, that's that's been developed um, by Joy McDermott out of the US, and and uh, it, it's got two domains. It's got a pain domain subscale and a, and a functional subscale. So um, the the composite score though um, has has been shown to um, be capable of discriminating people with high pain severity versus low pain. So, so generally, if they score, it's out of a hundred. If if a patient scores fifty four or higher, out of a hundred, um, on that on that patient rated tennis elbow evaluation, then they fall into this severe subgroup. So first thing I think is to use the appropriate outcome measures at baseline. Identify those who have clear signs of high levels of pain and disability. And then those are the ones in particular that I think we should be targeting with this multidisciplinary treatment approach. Having that conversation back with the GP um, or a specialist if they are under a specialist as well about that supportive pain medication. Excellent. Well, we'll put links to um, to that outcome measure in the uh, in the notes That'd as well. Great. Um, so, if you you touched uh, on it earlier when you mentioned about um, the rehab and pushing into pain, or whether we're we're trying to avoid pain, but um, how do the, the uh, mechanisms of management differ between the upper limb and the lower limb when we're talking tendinopathies? The management or the mechanisms? Um, or both? Yeah, can we go both? <laughs> could, we, could we tackle the, um, the mechanisms, mechanisms to start off with? So, so it's, it's hard to know definitively or be able to say definitively how they differ because research has been done to different extents in the upper limb versus lower limb tendinopathy. So we really need to actually get together with all the researchers who are interested in tendinopathy and look at a pool of measures that we can use you know, across all tendinopathies to try and understand better how these, whether they really do differ. But clinically speaking, it seems to be that the the um, treatment approach used for lower limb tendinopathies has has been that it's okay to push into pain, and that patients seem to tolerate it well with lower limb tendinopathies and respond quite well. Um, as we mentioned earlier, pushing into pain with lateral elbow pain only seems to make them worse and that once they if their pain increases with treatment then you lose patient compliance you lose the the trust of the patient and and I don't know if it's because it has a greater impact on their activities of daily living because the elbow connects the hand to the to the head and the face and and if the elbow is painful then then they effectively lose a significant amount of use of the hand on that side and it's typically the dominant side as well so it impacts people's ability to work um, and perform just their normal activities of daily living so it may be that there's a, a greater psychosocial component to the upper limb that hasn't yet been really clearly teased out in the literature yeah. um, so so that may be one thing that's different then it may be that this um, um, the involvement of this central sensitization may be different in the upper versus lower limb tendinopathies um, there is a, a a more 
intimate association between sensory nerves and, and motor nerves as well at the elbow than there is, for example, near the patella tendon or even near the Achilles tendon. So perhaps there's anatomical differences that discriminate how the upper limb versus lower limb tendinopathies present may explain this difference in, in wind up in central sensitization if you like. Um, so so uh, Plinsinger published a systematic review not so long ago in BJSM um, looking at the evidence of, of central sensitization and tendinopathy and her conclusion was that at least in the lower limb there was no evidence to support widespread central sensitization in lower limb tendinopathies in patella and Achilles tendinopathy in particular. Um, so, so I guess that it, it's still unclear whether or not they really are different. Um, whether there are certainly structurally they are similar in the things that we see structurally, and and. and Similarly, this disconnect between structure and severity of symptoms is consistent in the upper versus lower limb. But the role that the central nervous system may play in the maintenance of chronic pain in upper versus lower limb tendinopathy, we're not sure yet. Yeah, that's some, uh, some really interesting points there. Um, why do you think that echoes that fits in nicely with why why lateral elbow pain can be such a challenge to treat? Have through us trying to piggyback off the research which is um, off of the lower limb and trying to fit that shoehorn that into the the upper limb. Do you think that's one of the the, the, the challenges we've had? While this can be uh, a stubborn pathology. Yes, I think so. Um... There's no evidence that eccentric exercises, for example, are more effective than other forms of exercise in the upper limb, in, in, in lateral elbow pain in particular. So the evidence suggests that exercise of any form, be it concentric, eccentric, isometric, is effective. Um, a study by Coombs et al. recently where she looked at the... Um, effects of isometric exercise that either went pushed into pain or stayed below pain thresholds, she found that their, um, the response in terms of changing pressure pain thresholds and things like that were, were better if the isometric exercise stayed away from pain and was not pain provoking. Um, and given that isometric exercise in itself has, is a, has a known analgesic effect, and that's just in normal healthy controls, we know that occurs, that if, if, if an individual's endogenous analgesic responses are intact, then perhaps we can tap into that process, into that endogenous analgesia through isometric exercises. So the approach I've started to use more and more when, I, when I'm treating patients with lateral elbow pain, particularly in the, in the initial um, treatment period where I'm trying to reduce pain rather than provoke pain with exercise, is that I will target isometric exercises in the initial instance. It's a, it's a great way to try and induce an analgesic response, so to reduce pain, get some exercising to show and demonstrate that they can do some exercises without it hurting or provoking their pain, and 
and it's a great way to get patient compliance to get the patient on board with trying to instigate a rehabilitation program especially when it's not going to be a quick fix um, of course there's we haven't talked differential diagnosis so I'm not saying that one size fits all here either and, and it's not the same for everybody but but for cases where there is you, you clearly think there's a tendinopathic contribution to their pain, then I think exercise is certainly the go-to treatment um, and making it as pain-free as possible is a really good starting point. Yeah, absolutely. On reflection of my own practice, um, you know, becoming focused on the role of the wrist extensors as a junior and getting people doing wrist extension exercises has now you know straying away from that with a focus being on the actual role of the wrist extensors, which is actually less about wrist extension and more about isometric to allow function of the upper limb in, in normal everyday life, particularly with gripping tasks, and then rehab has kind of taken that as a focus and a move into that direction, which I think then um, it, the, the um, uh, patients can then relate to that. They can see how that is a functional movement that they're doing to a bit more, bit more buy-in and crossover, hopefully, into everyday Absolutely. practice. Absolutely. Yeah, there's not too many things that we do under load where we're flapping or waving our hand yeah. up and down using wrist flexion and extension. Like yeah. you said, most of the time the wrist functions in an isometric position and it's got to be an optimal position that allows the fingers to do and the thumb to do their job and the shoulder of course so yeah it's that isometric it, it does it, it, it plays into that functional task I think really well yeah having said that on reflection of several patients then will say this is a this is a shoulder exercise not a not a wrist exercise and uh, yeah having that conversation that dialogue with the patient explaining why the, the, the reasoning behind it which is uh, which is always good absolutely um you touched on it there, if we go a bit more depth about differential diagnosis of actual elbow pain, could you, um, could you discuss that for the listeners, what's on the radar, um, just so they're not homing in on this is uh, your usual standard lateral elbow pain and, and, uh, and what other things should we keep yeah. our mind open for? I think this is a really important area and it's one that sort of will develop over time, I think, in terms of the evidence. Um, there's been a lot of discussion. If you look at the elbow literature, there's, you know, for, for since probably the 1930s, there's been, you know, clinical papers out there talking about differential diagnosis. It's hard to pinpoint with, the, with hard evidence on what they are and, and, and to some extent you know clinicians disagree about the presence for example of radial tunnel syndrome so radial tunnel syndrome is is um, defined by involvement like a neuropathic involvement of the radial nerve as it passes um, under the the, the, the forearm extensor bulk and between the extensors and the and the head of the radius in particular around that lateral elbow region uh, I think clinically I certainly see radial nerve involvement, neuropathy, um, whether it's entrapment, um, whether it's, a, a, it's compression, um, it's hard to say because it's been poorly imaged I think over, over the years and, and that's an area that could be better improved um, is imaging of the radial nerve, particularly around that lateral elbow region. 
Um, but clinically, I think there's certainly, if you're getting patients who have radiating pain, for example, into the forearm, into the... Um, you know, the dorsal aspect of the wrist and the hand, if their pain is going above the elbow, and if it, it, you know, often the patients will trace their pain along the path of the radial nerve, so it will spiral um, up the lateral humerus, and they'll also then often point to um, having posterior shoulder pain, and, and sometimes even that sort of, um, you know, lateral thoracic kind of pain as well. If, if a patient's starting to report widespread or presents with that widespread pain, then you, you can't explain that through a simple local tendinopathy. You know, it's something more to it. Is it cervical spine driven? You know, that's something I think clinically we need to um, differentially diagnose out um, and, and trialling treatment at the neck to see if that changes because they can present with all the classic signs and symptoms of pain on local palpation over the elbow, pain on gripping, pain on resisted wrist extension. All those characteristics can still be there and yet you treat the neck and you can take away their pain. So if... You know, I think it's important that we we do keep in mind the cervical spine as a as a possible differential diagnosis versus peripheral nerve, radial nerve. Um, also, don't forget the antibrachial cutaneous nerve, which um, has a has a has a pathway that also goes over that lateral elbow region. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I think there's a few diagnoses there that we need to be careful with. Um, we've got um, the role of the supinator in terms of entrapping the posterior interosseous nerve as it passes through supinator via that arcade of Froch. Yeah. That's another possible differential diagnosis. And I also think the head of the radius and the role of the, um, the position of the radius has a role to play in terms of lateral elbow pain as well. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to suggest that it's an instability, um, but I think that there is certainly a, a component that involves the, um, the, the movement of or a cam effect of the head of the radius as it goes from supination into pronation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you've given us nice insight there of those differential um, diagnoses. So just to reflect on that, a, a lot of that is you might have some positive testing on your, your usual lateral elbow pain, but making your ears prick up when you're hearing slightly different um, uh, subjective history um, and being a presence of pain and, and onset of pain would maybe make you delve more into uh, more into that and a non-response to maybe um, the load in treatment that you'd usually do with the lateral elbow. Pain. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, the the other things that they'll report um, that may be different, so things that are going to make you sit up and take notice, maybe things where they report that particular postures of the arm are more aggravating and it may be that they feel their pain more when their arm is outstretched, so for example driving or when they're reaching out to the side away from their body and it may be in a completely otherwise unloaded position, it's just the fact that they're in you know, a shoulder elevation, elbow extension type of position that, that suggests that maybe there's some sort of a neural component to it, you know, that, that it's the neural loading rather than the tendon loading yeah. that is provoking pain. 
fantastic. It, it, um, just to finish up, could you, with a possible uh, case example, can you share with listeners how you'd manage and progress rehab in, in a patient with lateral elbow pain? With what diagnosis? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so a classic. Yes. A classic tendinopathy. Yeah lateral elbow pain so talking about a patient that presents with pinpoint pain over that lateral elbow region that doesn't radiate anywhere provoked by gripping um, they complain of pain with shaking hands um, carrying groceries even if they're really bad things like even picking up a drink um, may be enough to provoke them Um, I will always look at consider the role of the shoulder Um, and and any restrictions in the shoulder and neck as part of that whole global upper limb chain in terms of my management. And if there are restrictions, cervical spine or shoulder, I would address those. Restrictions or motor control issues. I would, as we talked about before, typically start with isometric exercises um, for their analgesic effect and also because that's the functional role of the wrist extensors. I will pay close attention and and retrain wrist posture in these patients because oftentimes if you watch how they grip, they tend to flex their wrist more than they would otherwise normally do what would be considered the ideal wrist posture. So I I would target that. I would use modalities such as taping or manual manual deloading so using teaching the patient to actually hold their elbow in particular ways to help reduce pain so using tape taping to reduce pain or or using a self-glide a self-manual therapy technique to help them reduce pain Um, particularly I I then would say to the patient, that's your Panadol or that's your local analgesic. So you don't need to take non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. You don't need to take local analgesics. You can reduce pain through particular techniques, self-manual therapy techniques, which I think are really important here because it gives the patients control back over their pain and that if they... You know, they do do something that aggravates their pain. They can settle it down quickly and they don't have that ongoing nociceptive drive into their system. I will, I spend a lot of time educating patients about what the condition is and the prognosis in terms of trying to get them better um, and the time it's going to take and what they need to do. Make this very much about the patient's self-management and I give them advice on how to modify. It's important that they modify their activities um, to try and reduce their pain on a daily basis and across their day. So where possible, you know, change the way they pick things up, change the way they carry things, use their unaffected arm a little bit more to assist um, and, and, and modify their work environment where they can. One of the poorest... Um, prognostic factors or the one of the one of the most significant prognostic factors for 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 a poor a poor prognosis if that's right is manual workers who are unable to change what they're doing so it's really important that you have that conversation with your patients to try and make sure they understand that they need to they do need to modify their activities if they keep aggravating their elbow then it will not get better typically yeah 
I think um, I think that's a, a, a great point to uh, leave the podcast on. I just want to finish up by saying uh, thank you very much for giving up your time today and what's our first outdoor podcast for the MACP. Um, <laughs> hopefully the uh, the birds haven't uh, picked, been picked up too much on the mic there. Yeah. But thanks a lot, Leanne. Thank you. Take care.